So let me ask you, as a poor kid from the South Side of Chicago, what 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 went through your you know your childhood? How did you graduate at 15? Um, it turned out that I was a really good reader early on. My mother worked with me to be able to read by the time I got to kindergarten. And by the time I got to third grade, I was reading at a high school level. Oh, wow. And so um, they said, well, you know, why don't you go ahead and, and, and see if you can do well in fifth grade. So I skipped fourth grade entirely and then went on and, and did very well in fifth grade. Um, and Hey, guys, real quick, Dr. Dale here. All right, so I want you guys to do me a favor. Before you start this episode, please hit that pause button and click subscribe or click follow or click like, whatever it is. We work really hard to bring you guys this good information to uplift the entire community, and we really appreciate you guys supporting our efforts and our work. Love you guys. Enjoy the episode. What is up, family? I'm Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor Wisdom from Parents Who Did It, the author of the Doctor Doc Children series, the author of Black Men and White Coats, author of Pre-Med Mondays, and the author of a new book that's coming out that I'm calling Author and Expert. So I'll let you know when it's out. And you listen to the Black Men and White Coats podcast, the place where you get to hear the stories of Black clinicians. I'm super excited about today's guest. You guys have no idea how excited, how excited I am. He's somebody I've been, I've been pestering for a while now. He was in a documentary. I've been trying to get him on a podcast. I've got him here today, one of the most brilliant minds in medicine, period. Um, I'm going to introduce you to him here in a second. But before I do a couple key announcements, the first one is is um, huge, right? So you all know last week we announced that we were going to be paying for 20 MCATs. And we, we put it out there and we told people to apply. And I'm trying to tell you all. So if you're a pre-med, apply. We're not joking. We're going to pay for your MCATs. We're not getting as many applications as, as we should be getting. We, we, we got some, so we got, we got a decent amount. But if I was a pre-med and heard that, I, I would have applied 10 times already. Um, and again, the, the brothers just aren't really applying. So most of our applicants are, are women, which is awesome. But guys, we need, we need some of you fellows to apply to. But on that note, I'm going to announce the very first one today. So the very first MCAT we're going to be paying for, assuming she hears this podcast, and it's a she because most of the applicants are she so far, assuming she hears this podcast and she replies and emails us, gets back to us, the money is yours and we're going to pay for your MCAT. Her name is Miss Kedra Ridley, Miss Kedra Ridley from LSU Shreveport. And you know what we'll probably do? Maybe we'll actually insert her video right now. My name is Kedra Ridley. I have a bachelor's degree in biology and I have a master's degree in healthcare administration. I'm applying to medical school for the 2021 cycle. At a very young age, it became apparent to me that most physicians do not look like me. I grew up as an underrepresented minority in a rural and medically underserved area. Although I was surrounded by many caring and well-informed physicians, I always felt that there was a connection missing between them and me. I felt that as an African-American female, my background and health disparities made them different from me and made me different from them. When I look in the mirror, I don't see what I've seen in most physicians. When I look in the mirror, I see a first-generation college student who has excelled far beyond all of the limitations that have been placed on her. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who is passionate about the advancement of the African-American community and someone who serves her community. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who is not afraid of a challenge, but still vulnerable enough to be empathetic. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who has put faith and family above all else. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who will add breadth, depth, and diversity to any incoming medical class, as well as the field of medicine. I believe that my cultural competency, my ambition, my integrity, and my interest in being a patient-centered clinician are all things that I can do or attributes that I have that will make the medical field better once I become a doctor. 
But Kedra, congratulations. You were the very first one. We're paying for your MCAT fee. Make sure you reach out to us. Um, just go ahead and email info at and whitecoats.org and we will, we, we've got you covered, right? Your job is just to get into med school, do well. We'll cover the MCAT fee, all right? All right, so congratulations to Kedra. Um, all right, so, man, I'm not going to do too much other announcement stuff. I want to get into this episode, man. Today, I have got the infamous, the notorious, the legendary, the, man, what other words can I think of? The amazing, the astute, the erudite, Dr. Bill McDay. Dr. Bill McDay. A whole lot of stuff about Dr. McDay that we could, that we're going to get into. I'm not going to introduce too long because, trust me, we'll be here all day long if I named all his accolades. But the one thing I'll say is I met him at um, a conference, uh, I guess it was last year, I don't remember, um, I think last year, and I remember sitting in the conference, of course, you know, you know of people, right, so, you know, so I knew of Dr. Bill McDay, but I remember sitting at the conference and just hearing him talking, like, man, this dude is smart, he's one of those guys that everything that comes out of his mouth just seems to make sense, and we were preparing to film the Black Men and White Coast documentary, and I was like, I've got to ask this guy to be in the film. And I had no intention of asking him until I actually sat in the same room with him. I heard him speak and I saw the respect people gave to him, people like defer to him and things of that sort. I said, I've got to get Dr. Bill McDay uh, in the documentary. And we did. And I'm happy we did because, you know, he has some of the, the most impactful scenes in the documentary just because he spits knowledge, spits knowledge, spits knowledge. So today we're going to learn about him. Dr. Bill McDade, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Dr. Corradudu. It's great to be here. It's a, an honor to be on the, on the and a privilege to be on the, on the podcast. Man, the honor is is all mine. I know I'm, you know, I've been trying to track it down in kind of different ways to get you on here, and and um, you know, publicly, I'm gonna say thank you for uh, for the documentary for a few reasons. You know, number one is for being in the documentary, right? Um, number two is for making some key connections for us, right? So there were people that we were reaching out to, and you know, after we connected with McDade, it was like, oh yeah, let me get Montgomery Rice for you. Oh yeah, let me make sure Jerome, um, Dr. Adams is, is on board, and and just making those connections and such, and. And people always say, hey, Dr. D, how are we able to do this, do that, do that, do that? I was like, man, it's all about knowing the right people. And, you know, Dr. Bill McDay was, was one of those right people who could open doors. So, so publicly on the podcast, thank you, sir, for helping make that film what it was. Because without you and those key connections, it wouldn't have been anywhere close to, you know, what it came out to be. You know, I, th I think you had a fine effort in the film. It's a beautifully done film. I used to actually be involved in filmmaking when I was a medical student, as it turns out. I made a full-length feature and casted another one. Uh, and so I know how hard it is to get these projects done. So I, I really, really, really admire the effort that you put into getting that done. It looked great, had a fantastic message, and I was more than happy to, to make the connections allow you to, to get the folks in the film who I thought were going to be impactful. So thank you very much for asking me. All right, but hold on, hold on, Dave. I, I think I just heard you say that you made a full feature-length film in med school. It's so true. I, usually on the podcast, I like to start in childhood, but because you said that, man, you got to tell me about that what were you doing making a feature length so i wrote i wrote a full-length novel in med school which I, I still haven't published it but i wrote a novel and i thought that was something but i'll tell you making a film is harder than writing books so what were you doing making a film in med school well so so my cousin uh was going out with a fellow who was a, an aspiring filmmaker and when they told me they were doing a film a feature film i kind of chuckled a little bit and they called me one day and they said they're shooting down the street and they wanted me to come by so I came by and I saw that uh, things were a little amiss. And so they, I started pointing out some things that they could be doing differently. And they took my advice. And next thing I knew, I became executive producer of the film. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up raising a fair amount of money to get the film finished and, and go into post-production with it. And uh, one of the funniest stories I can tell you is that uh, the guy who made the film is a fellow named Daryl Roberts, who went on to become quite a filmmaker. He produced a number of films after that. And, um, and in fact, the, the, the first film Sally Richardson was in, uh, we cast together. That was a film called How You Like Me Now. This first film that we did was called The Perfect Model. And, and so when we finished it, put it in the cans, the motion pictures were in the cans at the time, and I put it in my back seat. I drove to New York to shop it to some independent film distributors. He drove to L.A. to, to do it. And I took my old roommate from medical school, a guy named Eric Whitaker. So we were driving back, actually, after having shown it to a few folks in New York. And uh, we were in Ohio and uh, I was drinking ginger ale out of the bottle and dropped the cap on the floor. And I bent down to pick up the top and kind of swerved a little bit. And darn if the Ohio State Police didn't pull us over. Uh -oh. So uh, we, we pulled over on the side of the road and it's about six o'clock in the morning or so. And Eric is still sitting in his sleeping bag in the passenger seat and I'm, I'm in the driver's seat. And uh, so the police actually came up on, the, on both sides simultaneously. 
and um, and and so tapped on the the window with the flashlight on Eric's side, startled him from sleep. Uh, next thing I know, we're sitting on the side of the road, and, and they're asking us the story of what's in the cans. So I, I reminded them that we had Fourth Amendment protection on that. And but I, but I'll tell you what my story is. Uh, I'm a, an MD, PhD, biophysics PhD. I just came from New York City, where I did my, my where I was showing a film. I'm trying to get independent distribution for. And, uh, and this is my roommate, uh, Eric. He's president of the American Medical Students Association. And, and he's a medical student. We're both at the University of Chicago. And Eric was saying, be quiet, Bill. Be quiet, Bill. Don't, 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 he'll never believe you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We, we, we got away. So, so no worries. That almost seems like too good to be true. Almost seems like that has to be made up. I know it's not made up, but how random is that, man? And not quite. And again, the people who the people who know you will probably find it more random than the people who don't know you. Because when you look at somebody, you're like, okay, he can't be a genius in medicine and in this. Now you're saying that you you were doing films with Daryl Roberts from a uh, early stage, and and I mean those some people may or may not know Eric Whitaker, but Eric Whitaker is you know has got a pretty good name for himself too, right? So you're you're at such a young age, you're already you know, your network is already a people who went on to do phenomenal things and you're making films when you're supposed to be. <laughs> that's amazing, man. I'm not surprised by it just, just knowing you now, but that is just amazing. That's something else. No, we just had a lot of fun. And, and you know, back in those days, uh, I was just finishing up my PhD and I think I was probably my, my third year of medical school, maybe fourth year of medical school rotation. That's why I could, why I could take off some time to, to drive all the way from Chicago to New York. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. We, I had wonderful roommates. I, uh, our other roommates, a guy named Fred Beavers, and he's a vascular surgeon and at, at the VA in DC. And then another roommate, Giovanni Smith, is a pulmonologist, uh, a hospitalist out in, in in Glendale, California. And and we're like brothers. In fact, I think Giovanni would say that he's got two other brothers. He said I've lived longer with you than I've lived with my own <laughs> brothers. <laughs> so we had a good time together. That's the way it's supposed to be, you know, just some um, forming real bonds that last a lifetime. Indeed. Let's um let's um rewind all the way back then. I gotta know what what was the thing that got Dr. Bill McDade started on this journey to becoming uh, I'm gonna say medical doctor, but you're a lot more than a doctor, right? But what was the thing that got you started on this journey to to becoming a doctor that that has such a huge impact on the field of medicine as now the chief diversity officer for the ACGME, but in so many other ways as well? Well, it really kind of started back in fifth grade. I wrote an essay about what I wanted to be. Didn't know what I wanted to be, but uh, it turns out that our family got a water pick that year. And so I put up a sign on the bathroom door that says, I'll do water pick for the family from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays. And so I scheduled the family in for appointments and I would do water picking for them. Um, and so that stuck with me all the way through high school, as it turns out, and, and even into college. So when I applied to college, I actually was a pre-dental major. And uh, the summer between high school and college, um, my brother, who was a, grad, a student, an undergrad at the University of Illinois, knew the fellow who ran a, an enrichment program designed to help students do well on the, the dental admissions test, minority students in particular. And he said, you know, I've got a brother who's pretty smart. You know, can he come in and, and, um, and join this, the program? He said, well, usually for people who've already completed the first two years of college, your brother hasn't. Uh, done any of the basic sciences so in college so you know I don't think it's going to be okay for him so he said well let, let him go ahead and, and, and test in and if he's able to test in then then maybe he can sit in so uh, mind you at the time I had just graduated from high school I was about 15 when I graduated from high school and and so um, so I'm sitting there with people who are you know ready to to, to go uh, take the DAT so I take the DAT and I do okay on the basic sciences and the chemistry and the biology portion but I absolutely blew away the spatial relations portion. And so they said, okay, you can sit in on the, on the program. And so as part of that, they actually had you shadow um, dentists out in the field on, on the south side of Chicago, which is where I was. So I'd ride my bike there on Saturday morning and, um, and sit in with Dr. Elisha Greenfield, who had an office on 87th and Stony Island. And uh, I'd go into the office with him on Saturdays and watch him put braces on people and hand him the bands. And, and then, then that's when I realized that I didn't want to be a dentist. And so I did. So what about what, what, what about that made you realize you didn't want to be a dentist? Well, I, I think it was dealing with the, 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 the people who who came in unprepared to, to have their braces put on they had donuts and things like that. And their, their TV <laughs> yeah. sent them to the bathroom with a, with a toothbrush to have them brush their teeth and admonishing them not to come back unless they were ready. 
then there's one kid who bit him while he was was putting the bands on and uh you know in in general it, it just didn't seem like it was what i wanted to do in fact i like science a lot and uh, when i got to my first quarter in in college um and uh i recognized that i was in the honors chemistry sequence and i got a, a b in my first quarter of honors chemistry um and it was a small class only about 13 or 14 people in it um i decided that i'd switch my major to chemistry and i was going to be a scientist at that point by spring quarter of my freshman year one of the physical chemists actually stopped up to the laboratories where i had an after school job so i had a work study job where uh, i was washing glassware for the organic chemistry class and uh, it was on the fourth floor and it was a walk up and so the the person who came up to talk to me was a, a professor named avram blumberg and he came all the way up four flights of stairs, walked up four flights of stairs and said, Bill, you know, um, we pay you as much for doing research as we pay you for washing glassware. Why don't you come down and, and do research in my lab? So that's how why, I started why, why do you, career. Why do you think he asked you that? Did he see something in you or? Well, I, I suppose I was a really strong student because after I got that B in the first quarter, I, I started, you know, really booking it and, uh, and did very well the subsequent quarters. And, um, and I think I had a bit of a reputation by then of being a, a strong student in, in all the classes. That was the only B I got that first year. And, um, and my thinking was that he knew about me. He was a, a very liberal sort of person. In fact, uh, he came from New York and he used to joke with me. So I said, you know, Bill, have you ever grown up on, on, on a block in which you had people who were of a different race than you? And uh, I said, well, you know, very early in my childhood, there was one white family that stayed on on the South Side of Chicago. But after that, I was in an all-black neighborhood for, for miles around and went to an all-black grade school. And the only person who was white in the whole school was a principal and the, and the seventh grade teacher, as I recall, for English. And, um, and, and so um, he introduced me to NPR. I'd never heard of it before. It introduced me to classical music while I was there. I played piano, but hadn't really studied classical music until I got into what college. Is the, what, is the, what is the, you said MKR? Uh, NPR, National Public oh, NPR, Radio. NPR, National Public Radio, NPR. And okay. uh, yeah. he used to listen to it in the laboratory. And, and that's when I really started to develop more of a world view because up until that point, I was a, a, a poor kid from the South Side of Chicago. And, and so you know, let me, you're on the South Side, you only know the South Side. Go ahead. So let me ask you, as a poor kid from the South Side of Chicago, what, what, what went through your, you know, your childhood? How did you graduate at 15? Um, it turned out that I was a really good reader early on. My mother worked with me to be able to read by the time I got to kindergarten. And by the time I got to third grade, I was reading at a high school level. Oh, wow. And so um, they said, well, you know, why don't you go ahead and, and, and see if you can do well in fifth grade. So I skipped fourth grade entirely and then went on and, and did very well in fifth grade. Um, and um, in fact, I was just talking to my best friend from fifth grade the other day uh, who uh, were still friends, you know, 40 years later um, and uh, actually 50 years later. Sorry about that. And, uh, and we were the top two students in fifth grade, and, and he looked out for me because I was probably the smallest kid in fifth grade. When I got to high school as a freshman, I was about, I think I was maybe 4'11 or 5 foot and weighed about 85 pounds. In fact, so I you were like 11 or something? Freshman. Pardon? How old were you as a freshman in high school? Like 11 or 12? I started, so I started about 13. It was, I was just, just to turn 13 when I started. And uh, then I'd done high school in, in, in three years, and so I was 15 when I graduated, and and um, when I on to college and, and luckily I grew a little bit between the time I graduated from high school and the time I started college. I was five, three, beginning of my senior year of high school. And I was five, nine when I started college. So that summer I had a pretty good growth spurt. So then when you started college, were you um, uh, like on campus away from home or did you live at home? Because you're so, 16, right? So, yeah, I, I applied just to one college, as it turns out, and, um, and that was DePaul University. My parents didn't want me to go to the University of Chicago, although I've been going to the University of Chicago for various programs. I'd hop on the bus. This is when kids could ride the bus. Hop on the bus and, and would go down because it was straight down Cottage Grove from my house. And, uh, and I actually saw uh, uh, a number of people, Condra Sakar. Who, who talked about Big Bang Theory back then, and, and Robert Watson, who's DNA um, pioneer, but who was a University of Chicago alum, gave a lecture in, in the building that I eventually had a, a, an office in, uh, in my laboratory when I was a graduate student. So it was a, it's a, I've been going to University of Chicago since I was about nine or, or, or 10 years old, you know, for various programs that they'd have for the community. 
And um, then I decided that's where I wanted to go to college. And my parents said, nope, you're not going there. Um, and they Why? were very much affected by the fact that um, they grew up in Chicago. They knew that University of Chicago had had a, a difficult history with the black community around it. Okay. And uh, that, in fact, um, they felt that by being so young going there, that um, it was probably going to be a more difficult environment from a social standpoint than it otherwise would have been. So uh, they asked me, um, you know, so, so they said, well, there are other colleges that you can go to. There's, there's the University of Illinois. My brother went to University of Illinois and uh, didn't really think that was going to be a good experience because there's too many students there. He said, well, the private schools in Chicago are DePaul, Loyola, and Northwestern. And uh, you're going to have to commute by train to get there from our house on the far south side. So um, which do you want to go to? And I said, well, which one's closer? Because I'd really rarely been on the north side before. And they said DePaul. So I said, well, let's go to DePaul. So DePaul was the only school I applied to. I got in and uh, I had a wonderful experience there, as it turns out. Um, and so I was ready to graduate after my third year at DePaul. But after my second year, um, I was uh, contacted by some professors in biology at DePaul, uh, Dr. Woods and, and Dr. Roberts, as a matter of fact, who uh, introduced me to um, a fellow who at the University of Chicago became a great mentor. This is Donald Steiner. Donald Steiner is the scientist who discovered pre-proinsulin, as it turns out, and, and really discovered post-translational modification of proteins. And, um, and so I went to talk to him after my sophomore, after my sophomore summer. And uh, he said, you know, the MSTP is really the, the, the best thing you can do in, in, in biomedical sciences. He said, if you just want to get a PhD, I understand that. But if you get an MD PhD, you can also think about how that science impacts patients and, and you can be a physician as well. And here, I'll so for, 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 for those um, listeners who aren't um, in the, in, as far as the medical field, could you um, explain the MSTP? I know it's the MD PhD, right? But could you explain the MSTP? Sure. So the Medical Science Training Program, or MSTP, is a program that's sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. It's designed to create physician scientists. These are physicians that are steeped in, in, in rigorous science training so that they can actually run laboratories and be primary or principal investigators of, of funded grant projects. And there are people who do basic science, but also see patients. Um, it, you start your first two years doing basic science and some graduate school work. Then for the next several years, you do graduate school work alone, completing your PhD. And then at the end of your PhD, you finish that, you do your thesis and, and then uh, defend it and then go back to medical school to finish off the third and fourth years. And they you compress it all in as short a time as possible. Uh, it's supposed to take you seven and a half, eight years. It took me about nine years, nine and a half. And, um, but you know, the fact is I was in a very rigorous field. I, I got a PhD in biophysics and theoretical biology. And I think I also played a little bit in, in, in graduate school, a little bit more than I probably should have. I got involved in student government and was involved in a lot of other activities on campus. And, and, you know, I think together it was growing up as well as uh, uh, being a scientist. So it was, it was good for me. It worked out. Yeah, I mean, so you would have started, you would have started at a young age anyways, probably. Yeah, I started at 19. Right. So it was, it was perfectly fine. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. So you sound like you were a super smart kid. What other things were you into as a child? Were you, um, you know, sports, music, or, you know, how would you, how would you kind of define your childhood outside of reading? Well, you know, I think that the, I was always pretty good in science and math. Um, when high school was on the mathletes and uh, when I was in high school, I was also in band. I was the worst trumpet player in the, the junior varsity band and they switched me to baritone horn. I, I remember the, the band director said, Bill, your, your lips are too big to play the trumpet. You know, you should switch to baritone. It's a bigger mouthpiece and, and we need a baritone in this band anyway. So, you know, get to play some counter melodies and, and it'll be good. And it turned out that it was. I used to get to school about three, um, uh, three uh, uh, rotations early uh, before my classes started and practice. And, you know, I, 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 it, was a, it was a great experience. I ended up playing trombone in the jazz band. And I went to play in the symphonic orchestra. So it was a, a whirlwind experience in three years of playing. But I, I really enjoyed music. Still do. And uh, continue to play throughout uh, medical school, actually, in college as well. I played in the wind ensemble in college. And and played in the wind ensemble in, in medical school. Man, you, <laughs> you you did a lot of stuff, man. So as, as, as that kid who was in the band, smart, young, did you have any social challenges? Well, you know, I think because of my size more than anything else when I was in high school, 
so I was a wrestler. So I, I, I love basketball. I've been playing basketball on the, on the, the pavement outside for a long time, but never made the, the team because I was so, so small. And uh, so I remember getting cut from my first year in high school on the, on the varsity basketball team. And it was a big school, like 5,000 students in the school. So it was a big high school. And uh, to make the basketball team, you had to be pretty good. And uh, I just didn't look it at, at, at five, you know, 385 pounds. You know, you, no one was going to play me in high school. So um, I ended up going out for wrestling. And uh, so I wrestled at 98 for all three years in, in college. And uh, but always went out for the basketball team first. And the wrestling coach hated that uh, because uh, I wasn't dedicated to the, to the sport. So I, I did that. But despite that, I was in really good shape. And I remember being yeah. the gym teacher. Sorry. You said you wrestled three years in college or three years in high school? Three years in high school. That's so this, is, this is high school. I, I went to a, a college that was very limited in the amount of sports they had. They had a basketball team that was one of the best basketball teams in the, in the country at the time. Oh, yeah. Mark McGuire, Terry Cummings. A lot of other folks who, 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 who were back in the era of Ray Meyer. But, um, but uh, and those guys were just amazing. It was like it was a different world playing ball with them. And they played pickup ball in the spring after the season was over. And just watching them bring the ball over half court and then take a shot was just crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but back in high school, I was, uh, I was, I was a gym teacher in, in Superman Physical Fitness, which is the, the, the course that all the, uh, all the, the jocks in the high school would take. And because I was a varsity wrestler and the coach of the wrestling team was a teacher of the class, he let me be the gym teacher, the, uh, the, the gym leader. And so, you know, I had guys who played for the Chicago White Sox, played for, played in the NFL who were in my gym class, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so, you know, they razzed me a little bit because I was, I was still, like I said, kind of tiny, about 5'3", and, and they're getting ready to go on to careers in Major League Baseball and, and NFL. So uh, it was funny, but I, I outdid him in a number of different calisthenics. I, I still think I held the record for inclined sit-ups there. I did about 63 inclined sit-ups and beat oh, everybody in class that year. <laughs> <laughs> All these pros, that's, that's going to be a claim to fame. So I beat whoever, whoever is a superstar with sit-ups. I got stronger abs. I got an eight-pack. They got four-packs. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so um, now, you know, High school, college was unique, unique enough. Your med school journey was unique enough. Um, you've accomplished a lot of things in the field of medicine, right? Like you've been able to, I, I'm not going to ask you what, you know, what those things are, but, you know, people ask me this question a lot, right? People say, how do you do all these things you do, right? Because, you know, I do a decent amount of things. You know, you're, you've accomplished a lot of stuff. So I'm going to ask you the question, how, over the years, how, how, how have you got such a decorated career? Like what was, was all this strategized? Was it planned out ahead of time? Were these your goals or was it you were prepared and then the opportunity presented itself? And because you were prepared, it was, e it was easy for you to be, you know, skilled enough to step into the seat. No, I, I think the, the answer to that is I, I had some really fine mentors. Um, and I always uh, believed in the, in the motto that chance favors the prepared mind. So you do, you do as best you can. You try to perform excellently at every level. And as you do that, people notice you. And if you want something done, give it to a, a busy person. And so that's what happens. Opportunities just came up because people saw how well you did in some other sort of field of, of endeavor. And uh, next thing you know, you were, you were doing this and you were doing that. And it, it, it took a while for me to finish medical school and graduate school. And so I got a chance to become involved, involved in medical organizations. And from the very outset, I recognized the problem of uh, not having enough African-Americans in the medical school that I attended. So I was at the University of Chicago. It's on the south side of Chicago, surrounded by an African-American community. You walk through the hospital, you see a fair number of African-American individuals, but none of them were physicians. And so when I got to medical school, I was the only African-American student in my class. Um, and um, there were oh, so very Dr. few African-American- Dr. Whitaker, was it in your same class? No, no, Dr. Whitaker came a few years later, but he was the only medical student in his class who was African-American, as it turns out, that year. Um, the year two years before me, John Ellis was the only African-American student in his class. So it had been that way for a while. In the 70s, the, there were larger classes of African-Americans. But by the time I started in 1980, that's when Reagan was elected, and uh, there was a real clampdown on, on affirmative action sort of, uh, sort of thinking. Uh, and that was really the beginning of it in the Reagan era. And then it really went to, to, to full uh, uh, sort of a, a processes uh, after Ward Connerly and the folks in the 1990s 
really went after affirmative action. But, you know, the, the programs that were in the 70s and the opportunities in the 70s had all dried up by the time we got to medical school in the 1980s. Hmm. So anyway, so I, I felt that injustice was, was something that I had to deal with and, and became involved with Student National Medical Association because I was there for such a long time and there were so few of us people didn't want to take it on. So I was president of the Student National Medical Association for my chapter for a number of years. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and the same thing, I joined the American Medical Association very early on. Um, in fact, the, the a past president of the American Medical Association, Ron Davis, um, was the person who uh, recruited me to the AMA when I was a first year medical student. He was a fourth year medical student. And so I'd been involved with the local society and the state society. And then by the time I finished my PhD and gone back to medical school, I'd done all the jobs at the local and state level. And so I became involved at the national level. So I became the vice chair of the medical student section of the American Medical Association because I, I knew all this stuff from having been involved for the previous seven years or so. And uh, then, um, then I was elected the chair of, of the medical student section. And, and, you know, I think by seeing me do that, Eric Whitaker, my roommate, saw me and what I was able to do. And while he was never uh, an AMA member, he became a, a very strong leader in AMSA. The American Medical Students Association became the national president for AMSA. So in this one apartment on the south side, you had the national chair of the AMA MSS and the national chair for AMSA, president of AMSA there. So it was kind of funny. I had no idea. Man, the network networks are so crazy. As you're talking, I'm thinking about, do you know, did you know Hill before? Hill Harper? Hill Harper? We actually played ball together. So I ended up graduating from medical school and I went to the law school, went to uh, Harvard for a uh, residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital. So Eric was there uh, at the School of Public Health the year before, and I was coming to Boston as he was leaving, going to DC where, you, where your AMS are president. So, um, so he said, you know, I said, well, where are the best pickup games? Because we would always ball when we were at the University of Chicago. And so, so where are the best pickup games in, in, in Harvard? And he said, uh, you know, go to the law school. And that's how I met Barack. He said, ask for this kid named Barack, he'll get you in the game. And so uh, that's how we ended up, uh, ended up playing ball. And that's why I used to play ball a lot um, after work. And, and Hill Harper was there, and Barack was there, other folks were there. Uh, in fact, some very impressive people were, were in that group. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And then our residency group would play ball in the, in the Charlestown Navy shipyards every Saturday morning. And that was kind of funny because I didn't realize the racist history of Charlestown at the time. And so uh, I, the Marine barracks were right there and the USS Constitution was right there. And we, we drive in and, and so play where ball is this in, in, um... in Boston. So, so oh. it's the Charlestown Navy shipyards. The Charlestown area is a, a very uh, staunchly white and... Um, and, and, and violent community, as a matter of fact. And what I didn't realize this, of course, when we went to play there, because that's where the residents at the Mass General, who were mostly white, would go to play ball. Huh. And uh, so by noon, we get there about seven o'clock as we're anesthesiologists, get there about eight o'clock in the morning, we'd be playing ball till noon. And noon is when the townies would show up. And, you know, if you were still winning on the court at noon and, every, and your group started to, to leave, you know, you'd stay on until you lost and, uh, and talk smack to the folks who were in the, in, in the town. And, all of a sudden you realize that you're in a different place. So yeah, and Boston was a funny place back then. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. So when, you know, whenever we set out to make this documentary film, you know, so in the film I ended up having you, Eric Whitaker and Hill Harper, and I had no idea you guys even knew each other, right? So, I, you know, I connected with the three of you independently and I had no idea that I'm talking to you and you're like, oh yeah, I know. So I'm talking to each one of you, you all know each other, but I all know each other. It just reminds me of, first of all, it reminds me, it's a small world, you know, yes. and the power of networking, you know, um, that's, that's just really amazing. So um, anesthesiology, correct? Yes. I keep on wondering, isn't your Twitter handle, what's your Twitter handle? Um, SickleDoc. Um, and SickleDoc comes from my PhD work. So what okay. I did as a graduate student is we did the, the fine electromicroscopic structure of sickle hemoglobin fibers with an idea of trying to figure out the kinetics of fiber formation and and how to solubilize them through depolymerization. And so that's what we were very much interested in. And my, my professor there, my research advisor was a guy named Dr. Bob Josephs. Uh, and the way that I got into sickle cell disease is um, um, Valerie Jarrett's dad was a fellow named uh, James Bowman. And Jim Bowman was the first tenured African-American professor at the University of Chicago. So I remember going in and talking to him when I was a first year medical student about which lab I should choose. And he asked me the sorts of things I liked. I told him, you know, chemistry, physics, math, 
He said, well, you know, we've got a guy who's working on the structure of sickle hemoglobin fibers. And, you know, there's no other African-American in the country who's actually studying at the molecular level, the structure of sickle hemoglobin. Um, why don't you work with Bob? Because we need somebody who, who has that sort of background to do that kind of work. So I said, sounds like a plan. So I went over to, to visit Bob in his lab and uh, they were a really great lab. It was a really friendly place and uh, had, had strong scientists there. Tom Wellams was just finishing his PhD there. So a fellow named Bob Vassar is now a professor at Northwestern who was a tech in the laboratory. Um, and Bob Joseph himself was a, was a very strong mentor and, and uh, a very good guy. It was a great environment to be in. Nice, 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 good deal. I get, I, cause I know you're an anesthesiologist, but every time I see your Twitter handle, I get it like, gives me a headache. I'm like, hold on, why is he sickle doc? It's always, it's always confusing me, but. Well, that, that's a difficult thing because there are very few anesthesiologists who studied sickle cell. There's Al Head, uh, Charlie Habercorm out in, in, um, in Washington, University of Washington, Al Head was down at the Medical College of Georgia, and then me. Um, and so we actually thought of things that we could do together. And, and, and Charlie Habercorm was looking at, uh, some, some elements of uh, sickle hip disease and the surgical treatment of that. Um, uh, Al, Al Head and I published on the use of inhaled nitric oxide in sickle hemoglobin, uh, sickle cell disease. Um, and that was a very interesting study because no one had ever thought of that before until I started looking at nitric oxide and its solubilizing effect on sickle hemoglobin. And uh, then this whole nitric oxide uh, theory about uh, its work on the vasculature and, and how it impacts sickle cell disease came about Mark Gladwin and Alan Schechter and, and uh, folks like that at the NIH were working on it. And in fact, the director of the NIDDK now, Dr. Griff Rogers, uh, was working in that field of, of sickle cell disease when he was a graduate student and went on to work with Alan Schechter and then run his own laboratory there. So we had some great people who were interested in sickle cell disease and, and, and being an anesthesiologist made it a little bit of a disadvantage. But on the flip side, I think uh, it was important work and I'm glad that we were able to do it. Nice, nice. Let me ask you, ask you this question. What is one failure you've had on your journey to get into where you're at now? Well, I mean, potentially in, in choosing to work in sickle cell disease. Uh, eventually, one of the things that happened is the NHLBI, which is the external um, funder for sickle cell disease research. And the intramural group is NIDDK, that is the, the diabetes, adjusted and kidney diseases. And then the extramural group is NHLBI. National Heart Lung Blood Institute. And it's kind of funny that the same disease is studied in two different institutes, but that's how the NIH structured the funding for it. Well, they decided at some point around the time that uh, I was starting at the laboratory, a little bit after I started the laboratory, but I was, I was only a few years in, that they were not gonna fund any more small molecule work in sickle cell disease, that they figured that the solution would be solved through gene editing or genetics. And, um, and so a lot of people who were working in small molecule uh, work, uh, work solutions for sickle cell disease went out of business. The, yeah. the, the company Global Blood Therapeutics kind of formed because there wasn't extra, there wasn't uh, grant funding available for it. So they sought out uh, independent funding and actually have come up with some wonderful new treatments for sickle cell disease. Um, but it came out of necessity. Uh, this is Dr. Ken Bridges, who was at Harvard for many years, is now one of the leaders there. Ted Love runs uh, Global Blood Therapeutics and fabulous group there. They've come up with some very important uh, steps and we still haven't fixed the problem of sickle cell disease at the genetic level in sufficient numbers to, to make it routine therapy. I still think it's coming. Um, you know, people have talked about it as a solution since the, the late 1980s um, and, and saw a way forward. But, you know, here we are, you know, several years later now, 40 years later, and we still haven't uh, gotten solutions for it. Do you think there's enough funding going towards sickle cell research? Well, there, there's never enough funding, obviously, for it. Um, but, and, and there's not enough people who are interested in trying to solve it. And we need more people who are interested in, in working in sickle cell. Um, we need to have better uh, equipment and, 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 and more resources, more funding. That's always an important aspect of it. I, I always felt uh, terrible about the fact that the comprehensive sickle center that Jim Bowman used to run at the University of Chicago is no longer in Chicago. And, um, and there hasn't been a comprehensive sickle center in Chicago since, since then. So I think it's an important disease and it still needs to be looked at uh, in, in great detail because it has social impact that transcends the science. I mean, sickle cell disease is an amazing disease when you think about it, because you can speak about it at the biological level, um, at, at the um, biochemical level. You can speak about it at the physiological level. You can think about it at the, the, the therapeutic level um, and then at the social level. 
And, and I used to teach a senior seminar, as a matter of fact, at the University of Chicago in the, the biology and sociology of sickle cell disease. And it's, it's a very, very interesting disease. I mean, the first, for the first crystal structure for any protein was hemoglobin. It was Max Perutz back in 1963. And, uh, and we know more about the, the biology and biochemistry of, sick, uh, of hemoglobin and sickle hemoglobin than, than almost any other protein. Really very well studied. And with all that study, we still were never able to come up with really strong solutions to interrupt polymerization and, and to treat it for, for the patient's sake. So it's, it's got so many facets to it. It's fascinating disease, fascinating clinical problem. I see. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, I, I won't, I won't dive into the social stuff behind that as well, but well, well, that's, you know, that, that's, that was important too, right? I mean, yeah. we're still dealing with the, the out, uh, racism that exists in the, in the treatment of patients with sickle cell disease um, and what happens to children who are impacted by sickle cell disease. And uh, there, there are so many social elements to it that it's incredible. And then with COVID now, we saw that that was one of the risk factors for COVID death as well. So, What, sickle cell was a risk factor? Say, what was a risk factor? Sickle cell was a risk factor for COVID? for dying from COVID, yeah, from complications of COVID, yeah. Yeah, I guess definitely see that. Um, so the field of the, the field of medicine, you know, I assume that your career so far, you're happy with it. It's been good, good to you. Um, you have children, correct? I do, three. Um, have any of your children considered medicine or going towards medicine? What is your, what is your, your thought about the next generation, you know, pursuing careers in medicine? Well, they're still pretty young at this point. I, one of the things that I traded off is having a family early in life. And so I didn't get married till I was in my 40s, late 40s. And, and so our children are still very young. So I have, people, I have twins who are about to be 12, it turns out. Uh, one of them's considering medicine. The other one is thinking more astrophysics at this point. Uh, and I have a very young one who's seven who uh, wants to be a dinosaur at this point. And... Uh, <laughs> So we'll see how that turns out. A dinosaur and an astronaut. So we'll see how that turns out. But One of my good friends, Bobby Satcher, is an astronaut in a position. So I thought, well, it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, oh, my goodness. Oh, why am I blanking? Oh, my goodness. We had, he was our first, he was our keynote speaker in Dallas here. Let me know why Coach Summit Harris. Um, his, his nephew was on my high school basketball team. Is blanking my mind. Dr. Harris. Bernard Harris. Bernard Harris. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there've been a few. I mean, Mae Jemison was a physician. Mae Jemison did definitely there first, yeah. yeah, and there's been a few. Yeah, um, but hey, you could have a rocket scientist and you could have a neurosurgeon. So you could you could have both the both you know extremes of gen genius, genii, whatever the word will be there. <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, the one who wants to be a, a cosmologist, astrophysicist, is um, uh, a friend of mine who sits on the board of the American Medical Association is a cardiologist, but he's very much an amateur astronomist. And so he built a, a, an observatory uh, in his home. Actually, he built his home around his observatory. And uh, so the summer that he came onto the board, uh, he invited Julia and I up and we came to his observatory up in Gloucester, Mass. And we got a chance to look through his, his big lenses. And it was really a fascinating experience for her. It's the first time that the, the, the one twin and I actually traveled together. And we had a great time. We stopped by MIT, picked up a book and had some, some legal seafood and, and then went on up to Gloucester. So it was a great experience for her. Nice. That's, that goes back to the whole idea of exposure, you know, exposing your kids to whatever it is that, that catches your interest. All right. So I want to ask you, you know, as we're starting to wrap up, I want to ask you what would you like for your legacy in the field of medicine to be? So when it's all said and done, people think about Dr. Bill McDade. What do you want them to remember you for? Well, you know, when I started medicine, I thought I was going to be a biomedical scientist. But what I really realized early on is that it was very important to have greater representation of diverse physicians in medicine. And so I broke all the rules coming on as a faculty member and became a member of the admissions committee. Uh, when asked by the, the Dean of Students at the time, Norma Wagner, who's a wonderful mentor and, and great leader. Uh, and despite uh, all the admonitions not to, to, to join uh, the admissions committee, I did it anyway, uh, eventually becoming the chair of it, becoming an associate dean in the medical school, um, and really focusing my attention on trying to increase the diversity at Pritzker, uh, the University of Chicago's medical school. And so we went from a, a situation where there were never more than four or five African-Americans in any one class, and as we pointed out a few times, only one, 
to that very first year with my being on the admissions committee, 12 underrepresented minority students. It dropped down to seven, went up to 15 again, and then stayed at 15 for a while, went to 17, then went to 19, then went up to 21. And this is over 10 years. And what I realized is that um, getting people into medical school was insufficient, um, mm -hmm. that you have to try to get them into residency programs because we weren't taking people in residency programs who were very diverse. And uh, then you have to residency, you know, you've got to get them into faculty roles. And so the, my transition from the medical school to the provost office at the University of Chicago gave me a chance to start thinking about how to increase the diversity of the faculty, both in, in the university as, at large, as well as in the medical school in particular. And, and so that's one of the things that I think I'd like to be remembered for is the, the work that we're doing to increase diversity in, in the medical profession, medical field. Um, I think that that's the direct way to give better care to minority communities, because minority physicians practice disproportionately in underrepresented minority communities, and that patients feel more comfortable with them being seen by a physician of their own race and ethnicity speaking their own language. And people listen to the advice and, 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 and uh, go along with the, the medical advice of, of folks they trust. Uh, this is deep work that's been done by a number of different authors. And what it really shows is, is that um, because of the, the distrust that we have between races, between communities, that in medicine, one of the most personal things that you have, is probably best delivered by somebody who looks like you, uh, at least in the environment that we live right now. Maybe it won't always be that way, but for now it is. And we have such great deficits in healthcare. I really want to be able to impact that. And the way I think you can impact that the best is by increasing the workforce of physicians who are more likely to serve in those communities. And so that my work at the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education as their Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer is really focused on that. There are some new program requirements that all residency programs now have to follow the, uh, the, the rule set forth that says you have to increase the diversity in your workforce and you have to provide now, was that, for- did that, did that come in because of you or were they already planning on that? They, they, were, they were setting that up at the same time that they were creating the office. So I chaired a task force on, on uh, the diversity and graduate medical education, which said that we should set up this office, make DEI a national priority and, um, and, and do a number of other things. But at the same time, the board was working to address um, uh, diversity, and equ diversity, equity, and inclusion in the, the learning environment and in the, the workforce of graduate medical education. So the two were parallel. And um, the work that uh, Kevin Weiss, who's another one of the leaders at ACGME, had been doing through the Clinical Learning Environment Review Program, the CLEAR program, was really focused on trying to eliminate health disparities. So teaching all residents about how to reduce health disparities, making sure that they were steeped in cultural humility, and then specifically working on trying to increase the number, the representation of folks in medicine from diverse backgrounds, which I think is essential because you can train all the white and Asian physicians that you want to, but if they don't serve an underserved community by relocating or by locating in those communities, you won't get to the people who bear the greatest burden of, of health disparities. So you need people who are going to work in those communities to do this work, and you need to have everybody trained because patients can go see anybody they want. Uh, physicians are, are, are free to relocate any place they want to when they finish their training. It's a combination. It's a both and. We need a workforce that's going to work there. And we also need everybody to learn about health disparity elimination. That's excellent. Excellent. A couple more questions here. If you could go back and give your high school self advice in one sentence, what would that be? Uh, my high school advice would be to take as much math as possible and learn how to apportion your time. What about your, your, your med school self? My med school self, I would say, um, don't isolate yourself. Um, there are people who wish you to succeed and use those folks as mentors, use those folks as allies to try to, to do the best you can. I found my experience in medical school was pretty isolated within the medical school per se. Um, it wasn't until I developed the roommates that I ended up having that I actually had a, a group or a nucleus of people in medicine. But that was, was four years in to medical school by then, by the time I got the group that I, I really think of as my roommates right now. And my last question for you, you, Hill, Hill Harper, Eric Whitaker, Barack Obama, who was the best basketball player? <laughs> I would probably have to say Eric was. 
Um, uh, I, so, so Barack has a quick release. Hill was, was just as fast as gre greased lightning, but Eric had a sweet jumper from the outside. So uh, uh, Barack, Barack will push you a little bit too, sir. <laughs> hey, well, you're modest. You didn't put yourself in that. You didn't describe your, your game, but you're very modest. No. Dr. Bill McDade, um, the legend himself. I've been waiting for this podcast. I just want to say thank you again, sir. It's been an honor and a pleasure to kind of pick your brain, get to know you a little bit better and, you know, hopefully make a whole lot of people listen to this episode smarter, you know. Um, I feel like just by being here, I'm, I'm soaking in some of that IQ. I wanted to ask you what your IQ was, but I held off from that question. But I feel Good like I'm soaking in. Uh, soaking in, soaking in, soaking in. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, to the listeners, thank you so much for checking out Black Men and White Coats and always rocking with us, always listening to what we've got. Please do me a huge favor, hit that subscribe button. Check out the videos on YouTube. So it's not just an audio podcast. Now we've got the video we'll put up on YouTube as well. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Help us grow that. We're doing our best to make some high quality content to put out there to kind of lift the whole entire community. And hopefully we can make a dent in this thing. Um, to the pre-meds, check out premedmondays.com. For everybody, check out diversemedicine.com. If you want to be a mentor, if you want to get mentorship, check that out there. And hey, pre-meds, get it ready to take the MCAT. Please, please, please visit blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash MCAT and apply. It's not, it's not going to take you much time to apply at all. We want to pay for the MCATs and to Miss Kedra Ridley. Congratulations. You're the first one. All you got to do is email us and let us know that you're accepting it. Info at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. Thank you all for listening. Hit the subscribe button. Love you guys. Life is like a blessing, everything a win, loss is like a lesson Ooh, ooh, yeah, ain't no time for stressing, I've been really stepping Ooh, ooh, yeah, if you wanna go get it, stop playing around Really got on racks, ain't playing around If you wanna go get it, stop playing around Really got on racks, ain't playing around Black men, white yeah. coat, shit, we up right now, yeah